please donate online at weru.org or on our new mobile app. Or simply call during weekday business hours at 207-469-6600. Thank you. When are we going to talk about Hello, welcome to Let's Talk About It on WERU-FM. I'm Patricia McLean, founder and president of the Maine-based nonprofit organization, Finding Our Voices, which is survivors of domestic abuse, including me, standing proud and speaking loud. For whatever reason, I thought the kids couldn't hear. And I would always say, you know, can you, can you quiet down? Like, if you're going to yell at me, if you're going to hit me, can you do it quieter so the kids don't wake up? The whole time thinking that they didn't hear it, and they did. They heard it every time. I remember someone else saying, you know, on a secret conversation, and my little secret phone was, you're not happy, are you? And I said, no. And I just started bawling. I, to admit it, that first time that you could admit it, something's wrong. To be able to just say that, it's like you're opening the floodgates. <laughs> so just say something. When you get roses and chocolates from someone who respects you and treats you in everyday life as you should be treated, that's a good thing. But roses and chocolates are sometimes part of love bombing, which is a tool that domestic abusers use to pull you in. Other terms are sweeping you off your feet and also the honeymoon period. The exhibit at the Camden Public Library three years ago that launched Finding Our Voices included a big vase of red roses and intermingled with these roses were red flags listing some of the tactics that abusers use and sweeps you off your feet was one of them. The public reception for that exhibit was Valentine's Day. We are coming back to the Camden Public Library in March for our third year anniversary of Finding Our Voices. And in honor of Valentine's Day on Monday, this episode of Let's Talk About It on WERU-FM is about a kind of love that is real and the kind of love that can conquer the false love of domestic abuse. Listen, and you will find the answer to this riddle. Welcome, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Thank you very much for coming and talking with me today. Yeah, sure, of course. Well, we talked earlier, you did mention about your mother was in a domestic violence situation. She can was, you... yeah. Yeah. Um, so my mom was married before she met my dad. Uh, she must have been super young because she married my dad, I think, when she was 23, and she had me when she was 25. She was married for a short period of time. I don't really know all of the details, but um, he was extremely violent, and, um, you know, eventually she left him. Um, I'm not sure what that process looked like for her. She hasn't really ever talked about it, but I remember as a kid, I think I was in high school, the phone rang in the middle of the night and it was um, a news station calling to ask if she had been married to him because he had just been arrested for killing his current wife. Was that in Maine? Yeah, it was in Maine. Yeah. So I think that the way that my mom dealt with 
um, my situation had a lot to do with the way that her parents dealt with her situation. There's a lot of a lot of things that go into this whole conversation, but you know, part of the situation that I was in with my with the partner that I was with was that we were breaking up and getting back together and breaking up and getting back together. And uh, at one point, I finally told my family that he was abusive, and half of my family disowned me when I got back together with him after telling it, telling them that. Okay, big mistake number one, when someone lets you know that they're in an abusive relationship. But let's go yeah. back um, a little bit. I'm really sorry to hear that. Yeah. And, and could you let me know where you were in your life when you came upon this individual? I was like nine years old. <laughs> We'd known each other uh, since we were young. We both went to the same church. Um, and his grandmother was our youth group leader. You know, we'd gone on youth group trips to New York City, and we did. Um, we went to a, a religious camp in Maine every summer for a week. He moved schools, um, and we kept in touch. You know, once the whole internet thing started, um, first through MySpace, and then of course through Facebook. Moved on, had separate lives. We'd both been married. I did not get back in contact with him until after I had divorced my husband. I had moved to New Jersey. And how was your first marriage? Was it a, was he a kind individual? He was until he decided that he wanted to be with somebody else and not tell me. So that sounds to me like you were kind of in a vulnerable position because you had been cheated on. Yes. yes. And so let's hear about that. So you, you were cheated on, I guess you separated. Yeah got divorced. Uh, we had separated. We were separated for about a uh, year and a little bit before the divorce was finalized. Um, and it was not until after that divorce was finalized that uh, he and I had really gotten back in contact. I was in a horrible spot. I just was really vulnerable. I had been with a man for 10 years who was cheating on me and, I mean, literally living like a separate life at a second house, at a second dog. I had no idea. So, and then here was this person that I knew that, you know, had all of a sudden come back into my life and was very um, complimentary and very charming and charismatic. And I needed, he was everything I thought I needed at that time. And he probably, he probably knew what you needed and was giving you what you thought you, what you, exactly. what you needed. Exactly, yeah. Did it, did it move fast as far as into a romance? Yeah, so I um, I went on a work trip to Hawaii. I came home from my work trip, and he reached out to me that week and said, I haven't seen you in forever. I would love to come to New Jersey and visit you. At the time, he was living in Massachusetts. Um, I'd love to come visit you. And I was like, yeah, sure, great. That'd be great. And he came, and he literally never left. Like, he went back to Massachusetts to get his things. And I didn't know at the time that this was a cycle for him, that the girl, I mean, he was living with another girl, <laughs> when this all happened and you know like their relationship i guess was starting to break down and he needed somewhere else to go and so he landed on my doorstep in new jersey and he literally never left until oh. he woke up with me for the first time which was a year later what was it like was it exciting in the beginning yeah oh yeah it was great you know i had somebody that was pushing me to get out and do things which was not something that my ex-husband ever did you know we would go to um, sporting events, we would go to, because of course I lived in New Jersey, I was about um, an hour away from Philly, an hour away from New York City, and we were about a half an hour drive from Atlantic City. So it was like all of these things that we 
did together. Like it was like he was taking me out to do all these things, but I was paying for all of it because he didn't have a job because he left Massachusetts and left his job. So you you were paying for he was freeloading for rent. Everything. Because I was living in the house that I had shared with my ex-husband. Um, you were working. I was working. I had a really good job. I was making a really good living. Yeah. He knew all of that. What about spending money for him? He didn't really have any for a oh, very long time. What about taking you out ever? Did he ever take you for dinner with his own money? Did he ever buy you anything? No. No. Did he no. indicate to you that it was a temporary thing? Yes. And, you know, as soon as I get a job, you know, I'll be able to take you out. Like, you know, there's that awkward moment when you go out to dinner where, like, they bring the check and they always give it to the man. And then it was like he'd have to turn around and, like, hand it to me. You know, there's it was that kind of a situation where it was constant. Like, I was, I was spending, 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 spending. It got really bad. It got to the point where... Um, because I was supporting two adults, uh, let me back up for a second. I lost my job because he was calling me at work every day and telling me I had to come home or he was going to hurt himself. Um, and so I ended up losing my job, this very, this job that I was so proud of. Um, you know, I had an office in New York and I had an office in New Jersey and I was traveling in between the two and I felt like I was this big adult living this big adult life. And then I lost that job. And because I was supporting both of us on my unemployment, um, I got behind on my car payment and my car got repossessed and I had no car. The only thing we had for transportation was his car. And it was a real bad situation. It was a real, and, and he knew that he was holding that over me, that he was the sole transportation we had. We lived in a, a portion of New Jersey that was not heavily, um, that didn't have a lot of public transportation. So the opportunities for me to even get a job were not good at that point. Why wasn't he finding a job? What was the excuse for not getting a job? Um, he, went, he, he went on a lot of interviews. I just don't think he was looking for the right kinds of jobs. I'm not sure, honestly. He did end up finally, uh, before we left New Jersey to come back to Maine, he got a job working part-time at a Nike factory store in a like an outlet mall making 750 an hour part-time and he was spending all of his money on shoes so I still wasn't getting any money I still wasn't getting you know he did buy me some shoes he didn't pay you back for any of the money that he loafed off you no and while he was taking money from you that in that way how did you handle that deal with it I think there was a part of me that thought it was normal that thought it was not going to be forever that he was going to get a job and then he was going to help me pay bills and because that's what adults do. You know, I had been in a partnership with somebody else where we shared bills and we had a mortgage and we had, in, you know, and we more than survived. And I, I it was difficult. <laughs> it was really difficult. When, when did the bad stuff start? What were the first signs and what were the first indication that it wasn't so great? Uh, we'd only been together for three months the first time he hit me. But prior to that, um, there was, we were coming back to Maine. His grandmother had gotten into an, an accident at home and had to have emergency surgery. And we had set the alarm to get up super early to drive back to Maine from New Jersey. It's a nine hour drive. And the alarm didn't go off. And he lost his stuff. I mean, throwing things, 
um, threw the alarm clock and it dented the wall and just like an over exaggeration of a situation that really didn't warrant, you know, it was upsetting that we were going to get a later start and we might not get there until his grandmother's surgery had already started. But to me, it was like, okay, well, you know, we just need to get on the road. Like, that's all. Had you ever seen any indication of that, a temper like that from him? No. And I had, you know, I, I had gotten um, warnings from people that he was not a good person. You know, a, a girl that I went to high school with had contacted me when she found out that I was seeing him and just said, I just want you to be really careful. He's very violent. He has a pill problem. Uh, and I was like, what is she even talking about? Like, I had seen none of this. I had seen nothing of the of the sort. And then it turned out, of course, it was all true. But so three months in, tell me about when he first hit you. Uh, we had gone out to um, the boardwalk in New Jersey, one of those, I think we had gone to Seaside, actually. Um, and he had been drinking a lot. And I, I don't remember the details. And I don't know if it's because I've completely blocked them out. Uh, but I do remember him being really, really drunk, um, getting into a verbal argument with me first. And this is awful, but like peeing on the carpet in my living room and my house just um, a complete disregard for any kind of anything. Um, and then I do remember him, you know, pushing me down, kicking me. Um, but I don't remember all of the details. Again, I don't know if it's just, I probably blocked it all out. And what happened? What was the repercussion of that? He, you know, was of course very apologetic, said, I'm so sorry. It was because I was drunk. I'll never do that again. And, you know. The next morning? Yeah, the next morning. Yeah. And aside from the physical, what are some other emotional things? Like, you know, look on the power and control wheel. Like, was he isolating you? Oh, yeah. So the isolation from my family started pretty early on. I want to say it was like six months in. Um, we had, you know, of course, had come here because of his grandmother's surgery. We'd come back to Maine and we were, you know, we got to see my family and things started to escalate a little bit. He convinced me that my family didn't care about me. You know, if I would get into a fight with my sister or if I would have an argument with my mom or have a conversation with my dad that didn't go super great, he would say, well, you know, he'd conv he convinced me that they just didn't care about me. And he was the only person that had my back and that he was always going to be there for me and that I was never going to have to worry about anybody else because I would always have him. W did any family or friends also not like him? Uh, I found, I mean, you know, people come out of the woodwork once... Things are over. Yeah, that's me too. You know, and say, oh, well, I never liked him. I didn't think. Yeah, like, why didn't you tell us, you know, say that when, when we were together? Exactly. Yeah. And of course, like I said, you know, once I told my, my family and said to them, I'm telling you this because I want, to hold, I want you to hold me accountable. If I say I'm going to go back to him, I want, you to, I want you to try to stop me. At what stage did you say that? How long in? Um, so, uh, in September of 2013, my parents had to come down and move me out of my house in New Jersey and bring me back to Maine because he left with the only automobile we had. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a way to get anywhere. Um, and he literally abandoned me there. I was like, I don't want to be with you anymore. So my family had to come down and move me back. 
I moved in with my mom because I had no money. I had nothing. I couldn't get an apartment on my own. I had no job. I had no car. I had nothing. So I moved back in with my mom with the understanding that he was not allowed in her house. And she went on vacation and he got in contact with me and I invited him to my mom's apartment and she found out and she kicked me out and I was completely cut off from my mom and one of my sisters completely completely cut me off from uh, my niece and my nephews and I didn't have their support anymore because I was with him. So you're pushing for five you're, years. You're pushed even more to him. Yeah, because we were living with his grandmother and then staying with his mom who lived a couple of towns away on the weekends. Um, again, I didn't have a car. I had gotten a job at that point, but. And so you said that, that then five years more of that after that. Uh, yeah. I mean, roughly, roughly. Would you say it got worse as time went on? Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. You know, his um, pill abuse got worse. He actually um, had me buying pills for him. He was giving me pills, which was not something I had ever done or wanted to do, nothing. Um, and it continually got worse. And it seemed that around the holidays, things got even worse. The abuse would get worse around the holidays. I don't know if that was something from his childhood that just manifested in me, but like, you know, I can recall Christmas Eves and Christmases that I would just be his punching bag, literally. You know, and, and thinking like his grandmother was just upstairs. His mother was just in the other room. His kids were just in the other room. So it definitely got worse. Yeah. So it sounds like you felt trapped. Uh, oh, I, I absolutely was trapped. I had as much as I knew he wanted to hold over me that all he had, you know, all he had to offer me was this car. That was it. But I felt stuck. I didn't have anywhere to live. My mother had kicked me out. She was holding, you know, all of my possessions. She was telling me she was going to get rid of them if I didn't come get them out of her house. So I had to move out, completely move out. And like I said, we were living in his grandmother's basement. We were staying with his mom. Did you ever think about contacting a domestic abuse shelter? Uh, I did. I did. Um, you know, there's an agency in the Midcoast area that is very prevalent. And I did several times think of contacting them and I just couldn't, I was afraid. I was afraid. What were you afraid of? I was afraid of his retribution. <laughs> I was afraid that he was going to find out that I had told somebody. I was afraid, you know, at that point he knew I had told my family and my mom, anytime she would run into him in public would make a huge scene which didn't help you, right? No, and I think that she, and I haven't ever had this conversation with her. I probably should, or she's going to hear it. But she thought she was helping. You know, she tells a story about being in a convenience store that he came into, and she chased him around the store, screaming at the top of her lungs, stop beating my daughter. Not knowing that he was going to come home that day and it was going to be taken out on me, that it was just going to make it worse. It wasn't, it wasn't making it better that she was making it known publicly that he was doing this. Did you ever think he was going to kill you? Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, there was, when we were still living in New Jersey, I don't remember what, um, 
I don't remember what predicated it, but he grabbed me by my hair, dragged me into his truck. My car was gone at this point, so it was somewhere near the end of us being in New Jersey. But he dragged me into his truck and told me he was going to drive it off of an overpass. We were driving down the street. He grabbed my glasses off my face and threw them out the window so I couldn't see. And um, I was positive. Put, you know, drove us on the Garden State Parkway, um, going, you know, 100 miles an hour, telling me he was going to drive us over an overpass and kill us both. And I was pretty sure he was going to do it. I don't remember what I said to him that made him calm down and decide that he wasn't going to do it. Uh, but he did turn around and go back to the house and he dragged me back in the house and threw me around there for a while and then um, against my will, forced me to have sex with him. And was that common? The rape? No, no, I would. I mean, it, it definitely happened more than once, but it wasn't a common occurrence. Um, and I never really thought of it as rape until you just said that. But mm -hmm. of course it is. Was it always when he was drinking? No. And the pills, no. were the pills Oxycontin? Uh, yes. Yes, they were. Did you develop a habit? No. No, That's thank goodness. <laughs> so yeah. tell me how you, how you got away. So, um, no car. Had no car. I was, uh, his, his, his truck that he had died and hit, I, I had purchased off of a, um, car lot. I purchased a Volkswagen that I couldn't drive because it was standard. So I paid for this car, but he was driving it. Uh, and then um, that died and his, his grandmother passed away and his mother bought him a car, which he then couldn't drive because he'd lost his license because he wasn't paying his child support. So I uh, was driving this car and we got into a fight one day at his mother's. He pushed me in front of her and she said nothing. And um, I got all of my things and I got into this car to take it home and leave him there because I was so angry. And she said, you can't take that car. That's not yours. And I said, I just put a thousand dollars worth of work into this car. Like I literally had that week. I said, I'm taking it home. I said, and you can keep him here. And she uh, turned around and brought him. Um, well, let me back up. He got in the car with me regardless. Uh, we were driving down the road and I, I, I don't know exactly how it happened, but he, he pushed on my leg to, on the brake to stop the car and then took the keys out of the ignition and threw them in a field next to the road. While you were driving? While I'm driving. Um, and he got out to go get the keys and I had an extra set of keys in my pocket and I locked it and I drove home. Oh my God. And his mother then brought him to my apartment, which was... Um, devastating to me. But it was at that point that I was like, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. Like, I'm not going to have this car held over my head. You know, it's not my car. And so I went and got a car loan. I don't know how I did it. It had only been three years since my car had been repossessed, but I got a loan. Again, I had another good job. I was getting paid pretty well and had to pay a lot of interest on it. It was a high interest loan, but I got a car. And I, that was like the beginning of the end. It meant that I could, I didn't need him for anything. I literally only needed him for that car. 
I didn't need him for anything anymore. So it was like a very slow progression. I want to say it took like two years of pushing him and pushing and pushing and pushing to try to get him to move out. And I would say to him, this is not your apartment. This is my apartment. It's my lease. You're not on the lease. You need to leave. And he would say, yeah, good luck with that. This is my permanent address. You can't kick me out. And then you were too afraid to just get to call the police. Yeah. Right. Like that was the thing. Like, should I have just gone to the police to get him removed? Absolutely. But I was terrified. I was terrified. And it wasn't until, um, it was like Christmas time of 2017. I don't, I don't know what exactly flipped in my head, but I was like, I, I, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to tell him he needs to move out. And at that point, he was already, he had already moved on at that point. To who? To Callie. Okay. Now here we're introducing Callie. Callie, thank Great. you for joining us. Tell us how you met this person. <laughs> so uh, I had relocated back to Maine uh, April of 2017 with my son and my husband at the time. Um, I wasn't in a good place um, mentally. Um, my marriage wasn't in a good place either. And the, one of the stipulations when I moved back, when we moved back was my um, then husband, I told him he needs to take financial lead. Um, and he didn't. Um, and then I took the next um, job that kind of fell into my lap, which is something that I vowed I wouldn't do, but one of two of my dearest friends were working for um, a Verizon reseller uh, locally. So, and I had worked for Verizon for like 14 years before. So it was literally a phone call and said, I need a job and that was it. So um, I worked with uh, this gentleman and I remember, um, in the job, I, I felt really defeated because it was a, a step backwards. So I'm already dealing with uh, a lot of anxiety, um, borderline spiraling depression, and feeling uh, a lack of self-worth. Um, and just having to move back home, like wanting to move back home was fine, but having to then live with your parents, um, trying to buy a house and everything's falling through, I was just not in a good space. Imagine that. Um, so uh, him and I became friends. I thought, I was like, great. Um, I, I'm going to have like a, a coworker VFF, uh, which is, I, I usually find, um, find people I can connect to. And it was easy because everybody at the, uh, at the store was under 21, except for um, my two friends, but they were in management. So being the two, um, the only two, like, 35 and over, um, we just ended up being two peas in a pod. Um, and I thought at first, I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. He's got Amanda, and we're going to do, like, this couple's best friend thing. I'm like, this is going to be great. And I asked him, I'm like, hey, why don't uh, you and Amanda come out to dinner with Matt and I? He's like, no, she's really jealous. She, she doesn't like you. Hello, 
You are listening to Let's Talk About It on WERU-FM and my conversation with Amanda and Callie, two women who were trapped consecutively with the same abuser. I am Patricia McLean, host of this show that is Conversations with Survivors of Domestic Abuse and the president founder of Finding Our Voices, the grassroots nonprofit organization based in Maine that you can find at findingourvoices.net. Two points to note in the second half of the conversation. PFAs are protection from abuse orders, which you can seek from the court to get protection from an intimate partner who poses a danger to you. And Courtney Billings, the friend of me, Callie, and Amanda, mentioned here, is one of the 41 domestic abuse survivors whose face is on Finding Our Voices posters and bookmarks and on the FindingOurVoices.net website. And her photo portrait will be with the photo portraits of our 40 other sister survivors in the Camden Public Library in March for the three-year anniversary Finding Our Voices exhibit. Okay, returning now to my conversation with Amanda and Callie. Callie is talking next. My two best friends that work there um, noticed things happening, um, like the way that he would talk to me. They told me it seemed very possessive and I didn't see it. He actually went into my friend's office and destroyed some of her personal property. He broke her coffee mug. He cut up some of her phone chargers, destroyed some records. um, And there was no camera in her office, so they couldn't um, formally catch him. And I didn't know, like I was kind of piecing two and two together that it was him. Um, but he denied it Um, up until like a couple months later when I had asked him, he's like, yeah, that was funny, wasn't it? Like, no, no. Things got worse with my husband and I, and um, kind of aside from, um, aside from him, and we, I ended up telling him that I I need a divorce. I'm like, who do do I have now? And I had... (sighs) him he was still living with Amanda and I was like driving him around doing all these things and he's making it sound like Amanda is such like such a bad person and turned it around that she was abusing him and she was violent so I think with at that point not that I have a savior complex but I'm thinking well I can fix this um and I will take him away and we'll do this stuff. And it's helping me because like I'm getting out of my own headspace. Were we in a relationship? But it was a friendship, but it just wasn't like I didn't know what it was. There was a point where he had um he had actually left Amanda's and he was crashing somewhere else. He kept saying that it was his nephew's apartment um but he was staying with another woman um and there was a point where i had explained to my dad um like couch surfing basically and then my dad and stepmom um said okay well he can come stay with us Uh which blew my mind i'll be honest it blew my mind i didn't understand and i um, and then he ended up moving in. 
he moved in Jan January of 2018. And then that's when things changed. We had gone out for drinks in Camden and he was upset about something. He managed to get a full can of beer um, unopened from the bar. And we left. And we're um, back roads Camden and he starts screaming. Now, we had just had a snowstorm and then it had turned to rain. Um, the visibility was nil. He's in my face. Um, I instantly go into panic. He yells at me, tells me to pull over, and he walks in front of my car and he looks at me and his eyes, I don't, I, I don't know how else to explain them, but they were just, they went black. And he took the beer can, the full beer, and threw it at my windshield. My windshield had been completely demolished. Um, and he definitely destroyed one of my windshields too. He did, Amanda? Oh yeah, he threw a bottle of, he made me take him to the liquor store and he got a bottle of like whiskey or something. He'd gotten into a huge fight with his ex-wife and we were in the car and he threw um, the bottle and his cell phone at just the right angle on the inside and completely shattered my windshield. And who paid for it? I did. I did. Of course I did. He didn't have any money. And you paid for it, Kelly, to get it fixed. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was uh, funny because I ended up, um, it may have been around tax season, I ended up getting like a secondary rebate from something. And it happened to be the exact same cost of the replacement of the windshield. And he was like, look, perfect. That, that works out. You're even. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not even. Like, you you did this. Like, and I just remember, th like, looking at him and thinking, what is wrong with you? Amanda, yeah. did, you, did you try to reach out and, and let Callie know? I, I don't know how I found out, honestly, that they were together. It was down the road because I had... I had kicked him out at the very beginning of January 2018, and he moved out, um, and somehow I found out, did you help him move out? Did you help him move boxes and stuff? Um, he, yes, yes, yeah. Yeah. yes. So somehow um, I found out that she had helped him move his stuff out, and I was like, I wonder if that's where he has ended up. And, um... Uh, you know, I stewed on it and stewed on it and stewed on it for a while. I mean, it was not until, um, I don't know, they had been together for about a year that I, I actually started writing about it, about my experience with him in my blog, because she and I had met once when they were working together. You know, he introduced me to her. I, I didn't really know anything about her other than that they worked together. And um, so I started writing about it in a blog that I had the experience that I had with him because I, she and I had a lot of mutual friends. Um, and I knew that one of them was going to say to her, listen, this, this girl's talking about this guy you're with and it does not sound good. And you know, are you okay? You know, and did you think about actually just letting Callie know, Hey, this guy's dangerous. You need to get, get away from him. I did. I did think about that. And then I thought about all of the people who had come to me and told me that I should not be in a relationship with him. And I kept 
saying, she's not going to listen to me. I didn't listen to anybody. It really bothered me. There was violence in every single relationship he has had prior to me. And there were a lot of them. There were a lot of them. He was married twice. Um, he has four children from three separate women. They were all, they all had violent relationships with him. So I knew that, that this was something that was a cycle, that this was not going to get better. So the, the best way I could think of was to write about it in my blog, because I knew that way she was going to hear what happened. She was going to read it because somebody was going to bring it to her attention. By the time you were writing the blog, you didn't feel afraid of him anymore? Uh, I mean, I still don't want to run into him anywhere, for sure. Um, yeah. But I'm in a much better place now. He had an abusive father. Yeah. Yep. He, told you, he told you both that? Yep. And do you think it's true? Yeah. Yeah. The father yeah. was violent, and did the mother ever tell you about that? No. Yes. I had a conversation with, it, with her about it. Yeah. What did she say? Um, she actually, it might've been his sister, but, you know, told me that they walked in on, um, his father with a gun to his mother, uh, when they were young. So it was pretty bad. Yeah. He started screaming at me and it wasn't just screaming. It was in my face. Um, pretty much the entire time, um, threatening. You're, you're driving him to see his kids, and he's screaming yeah. at you. Yeah, on the way back, he was making threats that he's gonna. He, my my brother's good for nothing. My dad's good for nothing. My stepmom's good for nothing. I'm gonna kill them. They don't deserve to live. Like it was. I just remember being in such shock with the things that he was saying and he eventually kind of passed out and we get to his mom's and it's late. And that was the first time that he hit me. Um, he punched me. I was curled up in a ball on the bed. I laid there in bed thinking, what have I done to get myself into this situation? Um, like, Kelly, what the hell you know better, was what I kept thinking. He admitted that he is an alcoholic and that he has a problem and that um, he doesn't do this when he's sober. There was a point where my coworkers even questioned me. They're like, Kelly, is he abusive? And I told them, I'm like, he is. He is. And just as we tell clients that you can't, you know, we're not going to force you to do something, but here are the resources. And we're concerned for your safety, um, but we're going to do, we're going to support you any way that we can. And uh, this was when I caught on to Amanda's blog. I can't remember who filled me into your blog, but I started I started devouring it. I There was a point where I was checking almost daily. In a way, it became like a blueprint for me. Uh, and like I wanted to know more. And as I was reading her story and living through it, 
there was more, like it, it just stoked those internal fires more and more for me. I had suspicions of other women too. Um, and Amanda's blog had confirmed that he historically does this just like her. Uh, he, he was working, but I was paying for everything. Kelly, let's get to where you decided that you were going to leave, because I kind of came into that a little bit, because I remember you reached out to me. Tell me about that, how that all came down. So it really was him. It was him leaving. He had picked a fight in Hannaford. He's yelling at me at the meat counter that there's nothing there for to make for dinner. And I just... Groceries he wasn't going to pay for. Yeah, exactly. He went to work early that next morning um, and then just never came home. He was um, hooking up with his boss at the place where he worked part-time. And she had a house and he was staying with her. And um, there was some back and forth for, it seemed like weeks. And it got to a point where, like, I'm moving, like, your stuff is going outside. Um, I'm not going to do this anymore. And he would come back and grab some things, act like he kind of wanted to work things out. And he was always like, give me a hug. And I'm a huggy type of person. If anybody gives me any sort of inkling that they want to hug, I'm going in. Like, we're going to do this thing. And each time he came over, I was like, no, don't touch me. Stay away from me. And the last time he had come back to try to get some of his stuff, he had clearly been drinking. Um, and he had looked at me. We were outside, and I had taken some of his shoes, and I tossed them uh, in my driveway. And I yelled. I said, you forgot your shoes. And it was sprinkling. And he comes back around the corner. He had his cell phone up like he was recording. And his eyes were black. I then reached out to a mutual friend of Amanda and mine um, who had gone through uh, her own domestic violence situation. And um, she's like, call the cops, let's call the cops. And I did. That's when I filed the PFA. I remember you telling me that you were really nervous about doing that. Yeah. So just yeah. explain just a little bit about the experience of filing for a PFA, because here you are, like, it's a big step. It was the most isolating, sad, unsupportive feeling ever. It went up to the clerk's window. I told her what I needed. She handed me the paperwork. She handed me a pen and said, if you need to sit, you can go over there. And she pointed to the child's room where kids get to sit and play while their parents or whatever, their mom, dad get to have to deal with whatever. So I'm sitting there by myself in this child's chair um, at this small little desk, looking up at all these words of encouragement that are meant for children. There was nobody there for me to, to ask questions of. And the clerk just told me to fill out as best as I could. And me being the anal um, precise person I am, I wrote down everything, dates, times, um, 
things he had done, things he had said, and I filled it. I filled it. It felt like an eternity sitting there waiting for the judge. It was maybe 15 minutes, and they came back. They're like, granted. Talk about how the two of you joined up. So um, I had up in, like, before court, I had reached out to all the women that I knew had anything to do with him since I had known him, which uh, other than, um, and Amanda was last on my list. I had, at that point, I had written Amanda, and I can't remember what I said, but it was probably like, I know you probably don't want to hear me. Um, been reading your blog. Thank you. Um, if you want to reach out to me, please do so. If not, I totally understand. I had gone on a drive and I pulled into my driveway and my got a little notification on my phone and it was an email. And I pull it up and it was Amanda's response. And I instantly started bawling my eyes out. Up until that point, um, besides some of my friends, my coworkers, Amanda was, Amanda was my support. Um, she didn't know it. I just had this internal shift. Like everything just changed at that point. Um, and we started writing more. We got each other's, uh, we started texting <laughs> and um, I think we had a couple phone calls. Um, and then it was, um, then it got to the point of court and um, I had written my own blog and I was, I had written down um, like the names, not the names of his victims, but I think I had put down like the first initial of their names and the list was long. And I memorized it at that point. And when, and, and Pat, you may remember this, when I was sitting there, or I was standing there, and his new girlfriend was um, to my back. That was the chance that I could do what Amanda had done for me. And I said, this is cyclic. This is habitual. He is not going to change. He is narcissistic. At that point, I found out he was bipolar. Um, there's nothing that anybody can do that is going to change him. And I started, I said, and right now what I'm doing, this is for A, this is for L, this is for, and I just started going down the list. And I know she heard me because she was four feet away from me. Um, and if that's the best that I could have done, uh, and I, I did, um, I did also text her. Um, and I did cut her number because he was texting her all the time and his phone was under my name. So I pulled the call records and I'm like, yo, I, I got her number. And I told her, I said, um, this is Callie. I'm not here to yell at you. I'm not here to badmouth you. I am here to warn you. If you need help, hold on to my number, text me anytime I will come and get you. We'll go to the place. We'll do whatever. Like, 
you don't know me. You need to be safe. Amanda, did you did you write the blog for Callie? Is that why you wrote it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I um, at that point when I started writing, I I had started therapy, and my therapist said, "If you don't think she's going to listen to you, maybe you should just write about it. Maybe she'll happen wow. upon it." And so wow. that's what I did. And my goal was always that it helped somebody. Ultimately, I wanted it to help her. That whole portion, the PFA, getting, getting her um, restitution was super important to me because I didn't do those things, and I should have. So, like, I felt the win when she got her restitution, even though his mother paid for it, yeah. uh, I, I still felt a little bit of um, validation for her that she got her money back because he was on her lease in the apartment they lived in together. So yeah. she was able to get a little bit of restitution. Amanda, do you feel that there wasn't justice because he was never held accountable for what he did to you? Yeah, no, of course, of course. And, I, and again, I think that's why it was so important to me that she did get granted that PFA, that she did get her restitution, because I feel like that validated all of that. How about jail? I wish. I yeah. wish. Like Callie said, this is going to continue with him. There is no him getting better from this. I, I don't believe that there is any hope for him not continuing to do this. Yeah. Do you have any interest in keep reaching out to the, the, the girlfriends? What's your thought about that? Um, I have no idea who he's with now. He's gone into like hiding because yeah. this has become a bigger issue. Like his mother has blocked me on Facebook because, yeah. you know, when I post a new blog, I post it to Instagram and to Facebook. So everybody knows he wrote to me and I started writing my own experience with this. So we're concurrently writing and, um, and I'm putting my stuff on Instagram too. And I'm putting it on Facebook and I have people reading it and I, I never thought in a million years I'd have anybody reading anything that I've uh, put to words. Um, and so there were, and again, we've got a lot of mutual people. So we have the people that have read Amanda's blog. And then now we've got the people that were reading what I'm writing. And they're like, yikes. One of the common threads between the two of us is Courtney Billings. So we've got um, a group of us and another one in this um, chat group. Um, another friend also had a really damning domestic violence um, situation. And there's so many. So, of us. Hmm? There's so many of us. It's ridiculous. It's mm -hmm. um, yeah. But um, so between Courtney and this other woman, like telling their stories. And I remember we had gone out to dinner um, and Courtney had just cut your hair, Amanda. And we're sitting there at Bullwinkle's and um, she she was telling me, she's like, yeah, I heard some more information about him. It's not good. 
it's got to be shouted from the rooftops because everyone's got to know, you know, that yeah. it, there's too much of it. And also, this guy's doing it. This guy's doing it. Stay away. He, he, he preys upon people that are in close contact with him, which end up being usually coworkers, um, people that, and I will say that he seems to, for the most part, connect to some really strong women that are driven and have, um, but they just happen to be in bad places. And yeah, yeah. Yep. You know, my partner, my current partner will say to me all the time, I don't understand how that even happened. How, you know, and I've had to explain to him, you know, it's a systematic breakdown of a person. Yep. You know, you, you isolate them. You um, financially resource, you know, you, you take all their financial resources and you, you know, the whole, the wheel, the whole yeah. thing. You know, it's just as a systematic breakdown of a person from start mm-hmm. to finish. And are you two, would you say you're good friends now, or how would you describe yeah. your relationship? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, um, the first time we met, we got coffee, and it was just, like, that hug was amazing. Like, I just, I, when I tell people this story, and I say, yep, I am super good friends with my ex-boyfriend's ex-girlfriend and they're like what the hell are you doing and I'm like you have no idea what she has done for me thank you Amanda and Callie both Amanda and Callie are continuing their blogs and you can read them here Callie's is at kerplunkbraindump.blogspot.com and that's k-e-r-p-l-u-n-k B-R-A-I-N-D-U-M-P. And Amanda's blog is at choosing.blogspot.com. And that is C-H-E-W-S-I-N-G. And if what we are talking about today sounds familiar, if someone in your life is making you afraid, say something. The 24-7 Maine Domestic Abuse Hotline number is 1-800-834-HELP. Connect with our network of survivors at findingourvoices.net. 40 Maine women, and now including Governor Janet T. Mills, standing proud and speaking loud about our experiences to break the silence of domestic abuse. We also offer an array of sister-to-sister support services. The music on this show is by Roan Yellowthorn, a.k.a. my daughter, Jackie McLean Strack. And you can learn more about her indie pop duo with Sean Strack at RoanYellowthorn.com. That's R-O-A-N-Y-E-L-L-O-W-T-H-O-R-N.com. If you have comments or questions about this episode or otherwise want to get in touch with me, President Founder of Finding Our Voices, reach out at hello at findingourvoices.net. See you next month on WERU-FM, second Friday at 4 p.m. And until then, remember, love should feel good. It's been a long, long time.
Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Maine Media Workshops and College, presenting animator Madeline Budd discussing her images of community in Harlem and Brooklyn in a talk called Street Fam in the Alumni Lecture Series on Wednesday, February 23rd at 1 p.m. Registration at mainmedia.edu slash lectures. This is Jim Campbell, producer of Notes from the Electronic Cottage and a longtime WERU volunteer. Every morning, WERU presents a wide variety of short spoken word features that provide perspectives and information and inspiration that are unique to this community radio station. Whether it's nature, reflections on politics and society, or news from the digital realm, short features have been longtime fixtures on WERU that listeners consistently say that they enjoy and value. So, if you're someone who values these short features or values any of the multitude of programming services that WERU provides, now is an especially good time to make a donation. Having WERU to tune into can be a real lifesaver. You can make a donation online at weru.org. You can even mail a check to WERU, P.O. Box 170, East Orland, Maine, 04431. Your support helps keep the programming going on WERU. So add your financial support now when it's needed most. Thanks.